from 11FS. This is FinTech Insider News. Today, Amazon backs off on Visa credit card ban. JP Morgan plots astonishing $12 billion tech spend to beat FinTechs. And Selfridges sells NFTs over the counter. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Fintech Meetup is the world's largest fintech meetings-only event. That's right, no speakers or content, just 3,000 participants having 30,000 online meetings that lead to deals, partnerships, and funding. If you're a fintech, bank, investor, credit union, or anyone else working in this space, you need to join. Fintech Meetup takes place online March 22nd to 24th. Go to www.fintechmeetup.com to learn more and get your ticket. What do the best user journeys and customer experiences in financial services look like? The first annual 11FS Pulse Report looks back at some of the best customer experiences of 2021 and is filled with insight from leading fintechs such as Plaid, Starling and Crowdcube. We also look at predictions from the industry experts on trends that will affect product design in 2022. Head to 11FS.com forward slash Pulse Report to download the report and see what's hot in fintech UX today. All right, welcome to episode 596 of Fintech Insider. My name is Ross Gallagher and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my wonderful 11FS colleague, Guerra Kiwana. Thanks for joining us, Guerra. How are you doing? Doing great, Ross. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited for my first show of the year. So excited to be co-hosting alongside you. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. The pleasure is always mine. Speaking of pleasure, as always, we are joined by some very special guests. Um, first up, returning to FinTech Insider, we have Ron Shevlin, the Chief Research Officer at Cornerstone Advisors. Ron, thank you for joining us. How's, uh, how's your 2022 looking so far? Oh, thanks for having me, guys. And uh, my 2022 has been looking pretty cold here in the Boston area so far, but thankfully not a lot of snow. But uh, I shouldn't complain too much. As long as there's no snow around here, we're good. So um we're also dealing with uh, rising pandemic levels here in the northeast of the United States. And so I'm, I'm hunkered down at home these days and waiting for this to go go away so I can get out there and do some traveling. Oh, man, I think we uh, we all know that feeling. We're right there with you, Ron. Awesome. Another welcome return for 2022. We are also joined by Eric Johansson, the tech editor of Verdict. Eric, as ever, great to uh, great to have you with us, I guess. How are you feeling about the year in tech as we sort of face into it? Well, it's great great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, always exciting. A lot of things ha- happening in tech. We have already seen a few big antitrust trust challenges against the big tech, tech companies, so Facebook in particular. We are seeing a lots of movement in the fin- fintech industry. So lots of things to be excited about and lots of things that I will probably predict during this show that I will probably be proven wrong, wrong at, at the end of this year. So we like lots of opportunities to make mistakes. I know, I know that feeling, Eric, but it's, uh, it's already shaping up to be a big year. Um, so we look, we look forward to hearing some of those predictions as we go, go through the show. And last, but by no means least, it is another return for Paddy O'Neill, the country manager for UK at Spendash. So Paddy, Great to uh, great to have you, obviously, in what is an exciting week for Spendesk. Obviously, we'll get into that uh, in the show, but I guess, uh, yeah, give us a, a bit of a summary of uh, Spendesk and that'll be great. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Ross. Thanks for having me back. It's a rare occasion I get asked back to anything, so uh, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it, it's been an exciting week, which I'm sure we'll discuss, but maybe to go back a step... Um, Spendesk is a B2B SaaS meets fintech platform. We were founded about six years ago with this mission of really trying to liberate kind of people, businesses in particular, uh, from some of the processes when it comes to spending company money that for so long have just caused so much friction throughout their business. So six years on, it's been very exciting. We've grown across France, Germany, and here in the UK. And absolutely been an exciting week for us and looking forward to the future. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hugely exciting week. And I'm looking forward to getting into the detail, Paddy, as we uh, as we move through the show. 
All right, great. That's our awesome panel of guests. So with that, let's get right into the news. Our first story this week uh, comes from Sky News um, and is about Amazon continuing to accept Visa credit cards in the UK as it bids to resolve the ongoing payment dispute. So Amazon has announced that it will now actually not stop accepting Visa credit cards for UK payments later this week, as was previously planned, as the two companies seek to resolve their dispute. In an email to customers, the online retailer said it was working closely with Visa on a potential solution. The move had been due to take effect on the 19th of January, with Amazon blaming high fees Visa was charging for processing credit card transactions when it was announced last November. So Amazon's latest message to customers didn't say that the dispute had been resolved for good. What it did say was that should we make any changes related to Visa credit cards, we will give you advance notice, which, uh, yeah, would be nice of them. Um, Eric, I guess you covered this story for uh, for Verdict with the headline, FinTech execs say Visa's woes not over despite the Amazon ban delay. What are you sort of hearing from, uh, from those in the industry in, in relation to this one? Well, it kind of depends on who you're asking. If you're asking Amazon and Visa, what you will probably get is the same response that most publications have gotten, which is kind of a canned reply on lines of, we're looking forward to collaborating to resolve this issue for our customers or something along that, 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 those lines. But if you're talking to the fintech guys in center, like the, the startups or the people who have been around for, for, for a decade or so, they are quite optimistic because over the past few, past few years or since they have launched, they have been trying to get in on Visa's and MasterCard's market. So whenever they are seeing a, cha a challenge to the big, big guys, whenever they're seeing uh, so, some, someone saying that maybe that they shouldn't have that kind of market share, that opens up an opportunity for them to take, take a part of that pie. So what I've been hearing from uh, the open banking guys, the alternative payment guys, and from Klarna is essentially a continuation of the way, what they've been saying for, for the past few years is that credit cards are the past and we are the future. So they are very, exci very excited about this, obviously. And then, of course, you have the guys like the bank.com guy who just thought that this was an experiment to see what the customer loyalty was for Amazon. So it's quite inter interesting. It's a it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because you know that that sort of monopoly, right, from the the the, the payments processing space, it's just been it's just been there for so long. And of course, this one, I think, for that very reason, really did grab headlines. And I think Eric, to your point, sort of spoke maybe to a bit of a power shift in the industry. What do you think now that they've sort of announced that this this isn't now going to happen as planned? Actually, are we sort of backpedaling a little bit and actually diluting maybe? some of the narrative around that that power shift, at least in relation to this story. I mean, sure, there is definitely a power shift whenever there are new players in a, in a market like there is in the fintech market, in the, in the payments market, in the credit market, there is definitely going to be a power shift. But I'm not sure if they're really backpedaling because it, it could still happen. We don't know what this deal will look like. We haven't really gotten that many details of if the interchange fees, which was at the corner cornerstone of this issue, what those will be. We do not really know. And we do not know that Visa, if Visa and Amazon reach a deal, we do not know if if Amazon is going to challenge MasterCard or any other credit company provider. So we do not know. But what we do see is just like what I said, is that we have see a lot of the new player, players on the block taking this as an opportunity to be very vocal about what, why they should replace uh, Visa or MasterCard or American Express. So we, we've been hearing, for instance, Klarna say, saying a lot, maybe not in particular to this, but they've been saying that credit card companies are the past, that people are afraid of using credit card companies, but that Klarna and other credit card lenders are the future. You should probably take that with a pinch of salt, given that it's part of their marketing, but... It is what we're seeing. Yeah, of course. And I think part of the um, the challenge in really getting under the skin of this one, I guess, is uh, there's been very little that's come out really in relation to exact specifics. I think Amazon have said that the dispute was to do with, quote, pretty egregious price rises from Visa over a number of years with no additional value to its service. Visa sort of declined to comment, but claimed that on average, it takes less than 0.1% of the value of a purchase. Um Ron, what was your sort of uh, 
what was your sort of read on this one? What was your reaction when you uh, when you heard that this actually wouldn't be going ahead now in terms of the ban on the Visa credit card payments as planned? Yeah, thanks. Two comments, one to your question, and then I just would also want to re- react to something Eric mentioned as well. Um, my take was uh, simply Visa blinked. Uh, I think it was a great negotiation tactic on on Amazon's part to announce this. It, uh, I think they would have every intention on going through with it. They made Visa sit down at the table and negotiate. And I think, as Eric said, we still don't know what will come out of this. But an Amazon's announcement basically says, OK, we'll, we'll put this, you know, you're coming here to good faith to, to, to negotiate. We'll eliminate or, you know, retract the uh, the announcement for now. But I think basically, you know, Visa blinked. The other point I wanted to make in re, in reaction to a comment that Eric made was about Klarna's uh, and some of the other buy now, pay later comments about uh, credit cards being dead. Uh, I can't speak for what's going on in Europe, but I can tell you that in the U.S., credit card volume is is booming and very healthy. Year over year, it's been absolutely excellent. Uh, and I think what the buy now, pay later providers really represent is, is not the elimination of credit cards, but the future of credit cards. Uh, they are probably positioning themselves to be the best credit card acquisition platform that anybody we've ever seen in this industry by providing one-time credit in small dollar volumes or relatively small dollar volumes, seeing what the payment patterns are and being able to grow that relationship into a full credit card relationship. But um, as Eric said, it's it's probably marketing hype on the part of Klarna and the others, But and I don't really think they even believe that that credit card's dead. Uh, I think they are the new credit cards. And so this is why Visa's sitting down at the table, though, is the the, the changing economics of, of payments and, and why they, they have to pay attention to what's going on at Amazon. Yeah, I think I think that's an awesome point and a really nice soundbite, actually, just the idea that Visa blinked. And of course, there's been a huge amount um, made of this being a sort of uh, negotiating tactic. I guess, Guerra, interested to get your thoughts around where you think this sort of positions Visa in those negotiations moving forward. I mean, obviously, they're in a weakened position, but how do you think this plays out from here? I mean, Visa is by no means like they're not they're not David in this fight and neither is is Amazon. Like I, I like that Ron said Visa blinked. I think Visa, sorry, Visa, um, Amazon blinked. I think Amazon fluttered their eyelids and, you know, lots of people came out the woodworks. Obviously, you know, Eric, you talked about the open banking folks and buy now, pay later. Uh, but I think Visa, Visa knows exactly what's going to happen next. I think like, like Ron said, Visa was brought to the table. Um, I think Visa is going to come out of this fine. Uh, I don't foresee credit cards completely disappearing off one of the largest e-commerce platforms on the planet, especially in in the country in in England. But like, you know, Visa are very, this is not the first time they've done this. Remember the H2 debacle, like when they flirted with a bunch of cities in North America about like where they would go next. This is just Visa showing their, you know, showing their teeth really. And and, and, sorry, not Visa, Amazon, sorry. Um, And Visa reacting uh, and we we may never know what happens behind those doors, but um, I, I don't foresee Visa becoming insignificant in this situation. Like neither of them is the is the David and versus Goliath. Yeah, I definitely agree. There is it's definitely a point point of Goliath versus Goliath here. Like I said at the top, I would make some predictions, and I don't th- don't think that this will be the end of Visa or Mastercard or any of the credit card companies in any stretch. It's not like we're gonna wake up tom- tomorrow and Visa will be gone. And it's also quite interesting that you're seeing all these fintech companies that, that you said have come out of the woodwork to comment on this, and they are also the one of the reasons why. Uh, Visa and Mastercard will still be here because a lot of these fintech companies rely on Mastercard's and Visa's infrastructure to get their payments, to do, to offer their services. So it's definitely not going to go away. But it will probably these companies will probably have to modernize. We're already seeing uh, Mastercard introducing buy now pay later, and there are cryptocurrency services being introduced. So it's probably more of a modernization rather than a total deletion. Yeah, I totally agree. It feels like an evolution. Of course, there are competing solutions in the likes of Stripe, et cetera, that are coming up. And it feels like, um, you know, it, fe- it, it feels like good good terrain for those guys really to start taking on the likes of Visa and MasterCard, particularly in this context where retailers are, you know, there is a backlash really in terms of the uh, the price hikes, et cetera, from the likes of Visa MasterCard, especially post-Brexit. Um, Paddy, what were, your, what were your thoughts on this one? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's... Um... 
as I said, I think kind of echoing, it's just interesting to kind of take a front row seat and just watch these two, shall we say, Goliaths kind of going at it. Um, interesting to see which way it would it will end up. But, you know, a lot of what we see, areas that we focus on, it's more in the business spending. But just, I think an interesting point as you're talking like credit and where credit is going to really fall in. Um, what we see a lot is with these kind of smaller transactions that, that we're seeing in Europe versus the States, just the difference in terms of how people view these these things. Uh, what we found is when we look into you know expanding our business into the States and the need that we need to really have is to drive kind of credit, more credit-based systems versus the debit system here in the UK. So I just thought it was really, really interesting to see overall how these two sort this out. But... Um, I think, as you'll probably find in the end, that the, I'm sure that, that we will come to some sort of amicable conclusion eventually. But very, very interesting to check it out over the course of the year. I completely agree, right? I think one one to keep an eye on, right, in terms of how this actually plays out. But you're right. I mean, it's in everybody's interest, right? It's in Visa's interest. It's in Amazon's interest to to hash this one out. I mean, Visa obviously came back to the table because the potential losses from not being able to use credit products on, on on Amazon was potentially huge, right? And I think one of the the sort of big winners here might be the 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 American Express and the MasterCard co-branded Amazon cards, right? The sort of maybe maybe spiked in the in the face of Visa not being able to uh the the, the credit cards not being able to be able to to use on Amazon. So I think lots of uh lots of ways this could still potentially play out, but I definitely think one to uh one to keep an eye on. Um, all right, I'm going to move us on to our next story. Time is flying already. Um, our next story comes from the FT and is about JP Morgan plotting a, quote, astonishing $12 billion tech spend to beat fintech. So JP Morgan Chase, the largest lender on Wall Street, said it planned to dramatically increase spending on technology and talent to fortify its competitive position. JP Morgan Chase will spend more than $12 billion on technology in 2022 contributing to an 8% rise in expenses that could hurt the bank's profitability targets. Reporting fourth quarter results, JP Morgan set out technology spending plans that will see it use microservices architecture, cloud, and modern engineering practices to accelerate software development. The bank is also betting big on AI and machine learning to get more value out of its data and stress its commitment to cybersecurity. With competition for talent fierce, JP Morgan also says it plans to redesign the way it attracts and retains the best technology people. James Shanahan, an analyst with Edward Jones, told the FT that that's an astonishing number that probably blows away the cumulative dollar value of investment of all the fintechs in the world that are trying to disrupt them. Ron, I know you wrote about this uh, in your Forbes article, JP Morgan Chase to spend $12 billion on technology and why other banks can't keep up. So we'll come to you first on this one. What what, what was your uh, your verdict on this spending? A couple of thoughts on this. Number one, I think it was a bit going overboard to call this astonishing. First of all, they're, they've, I'm not sure exactly what the year over year was, but I know in the past they've spent somewhere around 10 and a half to 11 billion on technology. So a $1 billion increase, big deal. We were talking about a $376 trillion bank from an asset perspective. The other problem in, in trying to ferret all of this out is that where does tech spending begin and end and business operational spending begin and end? Separating that out, I just don't think it's that clear anymore. Uh, but the other thing I would throw in there is we've got to put this into some perspective. Uh, my company, Cornerstone Advisors, has been benchmarking operational performance in banks for a long time. And uh, here's the thing. So $12 billion out of the $376 trillion, or I think the $387 trillion, whatever JP Morgan's at, basically uh, reflects about uh, one third of one point uh, percentage point of its assets. So 0.32%. On average, mid-sized banks and credit unions uh, spend about half of that. So, in in comparison, this is a this is a huge amount of money compared to how other banks spend, at least U.S. banks. 
Uh, but what it really reflects is, is two things. Number one, it reflects JP Morgan Chase's management attitude towards technology. Uh, I see so many CFOs, CF CEOs of mid-sized banks here in the U.S. who want to benchmark their IT performance so that they can go back and reduce IT spending. Oh, we're spending too much than the rest of the than everybody else. We need to be cutting back. J.P. Morgan Chase's mentality at the management level, and particularly with Jamie Dimon, is very much look. We be, we should be spending more on technology because that's the future. But there's a second aspect to this I think is really important. And it's a kind of a, of a non-business operational aspect to it. And it's the fact that why, first, let's take a step back and ask, why did J.P. Morgan Chase even announce what its tech spending was? And I think one of the answers to that question is because it reflects Jamie Dimon's desire for Wall Street to, to value J.P. Morgan Chase, not as a bank, but as a technology company and as a fintech. So that's why they're boasting about how much money they spend on technology, because they want to be valued as a technology company uh, and not as a bank. I think, listen, I think that's a it's a really nice point. I think the first thing that I thought as well when I read the number was that there's going to be a lot of partners and a lot of big consultancies that are just going to be salivating over that the number and uh, thinking about their sales targets right where i saw you uh furiously nodding along there to to ron's point so i'm gonna i'm gonna throw to you next ah just love when love when ron unleashes um a lot of knowledge this is great because you know what you're you're absolutely right ron I, I read your article as well and it's it's just brilliant like on on the ball i think that like yeah on top of you know wanting to be valued as a tech company they also do have that like genuine like like emotional investment in tech and and they really actually have shown that they they're they're willing to you know put their money where their mouth is so if you look at the hires they've made if you look at the recent deals as well so you know open invest nutmeg in the UK a 75% stake in VW payments like this is you know it's a good time to be acquiring companies so like this this 12 you know billion is not only going to be like internally um you know spent it's going to be spent it's going to be they're going to go on a shopping spree. So I, I just, I, I wonder where, um, blank check. <laughs> yeah, blank check. Well, I would love to be founder of a really cool and interesting niche fintech somewhere in the world right now that, 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 uh, JP Morgan has their eyes on. So England, maybe Europe, um, the States, because then you just dust off your pitch deck and toss it at Mr. Diamond. Absolutely. And, you know, huge amounts of um, acquisitions recently, you know, including Open Invest, Nutmeg, et cetera, et cetera. One point, Guerra, that you made that I really like as well, and I think we should probably emphasize, because I don't know that it necessarily comes out too strongly in, in a lot of the, 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 the stuff that I've read around this is around that this isn't just about technology. There's also a strong people angle. Um, it's about hiring the best talent. I think there's probably a recognition there that you know, people, 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 people are important, right? And sort of culture eat strategy for breakfast. Absolutely. And you know what, like as much as this was also potentially a market shifting headline, could also be a really good uh, people PR um, hiring tool. Completely agree. Eric, what were your, what were your thoughts on this one when you, uh, when you read it? Uh, to be honest, not really that surprised. Uh, first of all, 12, it was $12 billion, which was a headline figure that everyone put up. But I think a tier sheet, which I think, Ron, you, you quoted in your really excellent sto story, they put more down to almost $6 because half of the money is going to be to just keeping the lights on on the technology they already have. But also, uh, the thing that, as I said, I wasn't that really surprised because they're going to put the money into machine learning, into artificial intelligence, into the cloud, into cybersecurity. Yeah, what else are they going to put, put, put the money in? These are the things you kind of expect from any company, in, not just in the fintech space or in the, in the financial space, but any modern company. You're kind of, especially as such a massive com company like JP Morgan, you're expecting them to do machine learning, expect them to do artificial intelligence. You're expecting them to uh, go, in, go into the cloud because that's where the, fu the future is. The, the only thing that surprised me was the emphasis that they put on virtual assi assistants. And that's mostly because I have an aversion to virtual assistants. Yes, they may may g give some idea of what how you should do your spending, how you should manage your wealth. But I just, every time I encounter a virtual assistant, I just have the same red hot rage that I encountered the first time I encountered a paperclip in Word. It's just, 
Smart chatbots. Eric, if I could just jump in with a comment. There's a reason why Chase would and JP Diamond would, would mention virtual assistants. You're absolutely right about the, the lack of quality in virtual assistants. But remember, he was talking to Wall Street analysts who all have human assistants. And so they don't know how bad virtual assistants are, but they're impressed with the term, oh, really, Chase is investing in virtual assistants. They think it's good. They don't know because they all have human assistants. So only joking a little bit here. I completely agree with the point, though, right? You know, when you look at the, uh, the areas where they're going to invest, right, machine learning, artificial intelligence, blockchain, big data, cloud, it did feel a bit like a sort of menu of... Um, you know, financial sector, fintech buzzwords. But um, Paddy, I wanted, I wanted to come to you. I'm curious to get your thoughts around, you know, can sort of big incumbents um, like JPM Chase, can they really disrupt or uh, sort of really hope to actually protect their competitive position? Mm. It's an interesting one. It, like, in my mind, I think one of the, I suppose, the hallmarks of a disruptor is your ability to move fast. And despite, you know, whatever talent you get in and however much money you want to spend, how fast can, you know, your traditional incumbents, your JP Morgans actually move? How can they really, you know, how can they really be disrupting themselves when they are such big units by themselves uh, these days? So to me, I think a lot, you know, for them to actually really, you know, be the, I suppose that one of the driving forces of disruption, I don't know. I think there is interesting roles for, again, incumbents, almost as negative connotations. And I don't, I don't really mean it that way. Very, very impressive, long-standing institutions. I think there's very interesting roles that they can play within this fintech revolution or, or whichever way you want to call it. And I think that's more as members and active members of the ecosystem themselves. So how do they kind of you know, partner with these fast-moving companies, whether it's resources, yes, or expertise or other things in, in that space? Because to me, I think that's the role that they can really play. And I think that can get very exciting for, for themselves, but also for the fintech in- ecosystem itself. If you have JP Morgans, if you have you know, whoever your Barclays or whoever they are, really leaning in and saying, hey, fintech, you know, hey, founders, hey, community, we're, we're in this fight with you. We, we want to move forward with you. You know, we have resources, we have expertise. We don't have your ability to move fast, but we want to work with you. To me, I think that's the really exciting play that these incumbents can have um, as to whether they can come in and, you know, disrupt overall. I, to me, jury's out. Yeah, no, completely agree. And I think, um, Ron, I'm, I'm keen to give you sort of the last the last word on this. The JPM share price fell more than 6% uh, on Friday, sort of in response to this news. So it gives me a sense that maybe investors aren't uh, too much behind the potential here. But what's your read on whether sort of shareholders should be worried moving forward or, uh, or not? Well, first, in terms of the stock price movement, I... I- I'm no securities analyst, so I try to stay away from that. But it always seems to me that they're taking short-term results into play and not really kind of looking at the long-term. And I think Patty makes a really, really great point about the, the the disruption aspect, too. And I think we have to get to a point where we use our terminology a bit more specific, disrupting versus displacement. There's a lot of disruptors in the market, and what they're doing is disrupting the way things work today consumer behavior, consumer attitudes, small business, things like that. Uh, and we, But that doesn't mean that they displace the existing providers unless the existing providers can't adapt to that. And I think to, to Patty's point, you know, if you're a startup fintech company, you may, you know, you may go out to the investors and say, we're disruptors and that might get you some money. But the real path to success is working with companies like JP Morgan Chase, because uh, there's probably a lot more money from a revenue perspective to do to to have them support you than to be scrounging around for you know direct to consumer type stuff or direct to small business. And it's it's hard to kind of scale when when you're a startup like that. There are always going to be 
some really huge players, and they're already emerging. You see Klarna in the payment space, I mean, Square, Block, whatever they want to call themselves these days, you know, clearly there. But the vast majority of fintech startups uh, are probably going to either go out of business or get acquired or merged and, um, you know, into other into other companies. And that was, you know, the real lesson of the dot-com era from, from 20-some-odd years ago. So I think Patty's making the best point here about the what this really reflects is is a support of the fintech ecosystem, not a fighting back of the ecosystem. Yeah, and we actually uh, we actually explored this question. So can incumbents disrupt as well as what the digital transformation journey could be for traditional banks in today's ecosystem in our brand new documentary series that launches this this coming Thursday? So decoding banks. It's an 11 part series. Of course, it is looking at all elements uh, of the ecosystem, how they all fit together to better predict where the industry could be going and the challenges and opportunities that this could bring for a traditional bank. So, yeah, definitely one to uh, definitely one to catch to sort of shed more light on that question. You can find it on YouTube uh, or 11fs.com forward slash decoding. OK, um, we're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. If you've been in payments for any length of time, you've seen the number of payment solutions explode. That's great for consumers, but incredibly complex for merchants and developers. That's where Primer comes in. Primer is the world's first automation platform for payments. With Primer, merchants and developers have all the underlying infrastructure and Lego blocks they need to build the best buying experiences for their customers. Learn more and book a demo at Primer.io. Okay, welcome back to the show. Our next story comes from TechCrunch and is about Spendesk being the fifth French startup to reach unicorn status this month. So fintech startup Spendesk has raised an extension to its Series C round with Tiger Global, investing $114 million or 100 million euro in the startup. Uh, Spendesk offers an all-in-one corporate spend management platform for medium companies in Europe. Originally focused on virtual cards for online payments, the company has expanded its product offering to tackle everything related to corporate spending. Following this latest funding round, the company says that it has reached a valuation of more than $1.14 billion, which is more than 1 billion euro. In January alone, five French startups announced that they have reached unicorn status, those five being Payfit, Anchor Store, Quanto, Exotech, and Spendesk. So, Paddy, obviously, will naturally sort of come to you first on this. Congratulations first uh, on the raise and, of course, that all-important unicorn status. Uh, how, 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 I guess, important is that unicorn status to uh, Spendesk? And what are you thinking in terms of the... Uh, what are you going to do with the funding? Yeah, um, thank you very much, Ross. It's been a hell of a week. It's been an exciting week for us all. When it comes to funding milestones valuations like first of all we can we can see the market right now so to us and and regardless of the market to us and and to to me personally we've always just kind of felt these things they're milestones milestones along a journey when it comes to the unicorn status i think it's it's proud moment for france um i think something in the air something in the water which i'm sure we'll talk about in france right now it's 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 pretty incredible just to see the growth of you know the tech ecosystem, the fintech ecosystem, uh, but also for our category. You know, we, we're talking about new ways of company spending. It's a busy category, and it's now getting to the point where you're getting validation from not only from you know acquiring customers and the growth that we're seeing, but also from the VC community. Um, so it really just fills us more so with confidence for the future. We're on the right path. I think we're, we're starting to hopefully transform the way people think about spending at work and understanding that there is a better way to do this so very very much um all things exciting on our side yeah no absolutely and i i I actually love that that sort of reframing that repositioning away from the you know the 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 value is great and of course it's exciting but it is a milestone but really actually more importantly it's that validation of what you guys are doing um for the sector and for your customers i think that's a really nice point eric i want to sort of come to you next on this one i think we've we've sort of touched on you know this being a really exciting time for French fintech specifically why, why do you think there's that we're seeing such a boom in in the French market in particular at the moment I mean this has been a long t- long time coming uh, as you may re- recall in back in 2016 
after after Brexit, rather in 2017, my, my bad, after two, in 2017, you had a massive push from from France to kind of encourage British entrepreneurs, tech entrepreneurs to come to come back. And we also seen with Macron investing heavily in the in the, in France's tech space. So this is a long time coming. So I'm not surprised at all. The only thing that I would say is, first off, Patty, con- massive congratulations on this massive milestone. Mass, mass huge congratulations on the unicorn status. But as being a tech journalist, I do write about unicorns co- quite quite a lot. And I actually looked up at how unique unicorns are. Uh, as you may recall, the term was quoted back in 2013 when there were 39 companies that could be seen as tech unicorns back in those days. Which wasn't that lot. It was zero point zero seven percent that had that kind of valuation. I looked at the global data feed, and that number has now ballooned to eight hundred twenty-six unicorns worldwide. So there aren't really that many unicorns, and there are, are, are a lot of unicorns, and which means it may not be that unique. I mean, I'm a journalist. I love to write headlines that says "massive, t- massive t- unicorn, great valuation." But I'm wondering if we maybe we shouldn't start celebrating decacorns instead, because there are only 35 of those. Maybe that's the next milestone, Paddy. Listen, uh, it's a, we have an exciting road ahead, um, absolutely. But yeah, I think maybe on on the French side as well. I think um, touching on, I think um, what I think is a, a really important point with French tech in particular, but. Um, also, you know, I'm an Irishman. I think take a lot of inspiration from what, what I think how France have, you know, used that government arm within this. Because um, was it back in, I think it was 2019, end of 2019, Macron comes out and says we want 25 uh, French unicorns by 2025. And we were the 26th, you know, so in next, well, couple of years you know we smashed through that target i think there were seven at the time you would add your diesels your blah blah cars and that was kind of really it um so you can really see you know this explosion what i like about this is they put a target on it they put focus on it um and even through i think covid and through the pandemic you know the government really got involved they, they, they're pretty active in supporting entrepreneurs throughout all of that time um, they brought in other things, you know, the, the indexes, the next 40, the next 120, um, et cetera. And it, it just really, um, I think it, it, there is a lot of inspiration other countries can take from how France actually mobilized around, you know, supporting entrepreneurs and building up this ecosystem. Yeah. And doesn't that just speak to the importance of that sort of political mandate, the, that that sort of regulatory mandate, that regulatory infrastructure to really to really help sort of drive that innovation. Ironically, I think the UK and, and, and the FCA were sort of the the gold standard in that for so long. And Eric, to your point, it's really interesting now to see the fallout from Brexit and actually maybe starting to lose ground in some of that space um, to other European markets. Um, Guerra, keen to bring you in on this one. What were your uh, what were your thoughts when you uh, when you read this story? Uh, French fintech is it's exciting. It's a really, really cool time. And shout out to Macron. Um, I feel like I might be the only person saying that, but yeah. Um, but I, I want to fo- uh, zero in a little bit on on the industry and SME focused, uh, you know, a B2B focused fintech. So um, on the list of raises this month or this week even, uh, Quanto is on there, which is a um, uh, SME banking platform in France. So, you know, it's but also, uh, as much as you know, Spendesk. I'm a very happy end user. Uh, there's tons of people in that space. Uh, so we've got Spendesk. Um, uh, we've got Plio, who recently also reached a 4.7 billion dollar valuation. There's Soldo, uh, who raised about 180 million last year. And the US, we've got Brex and Ramp. So it's it's definitely a there's a there's a large pie here, and um, you know really excited to see a French company that's really heavily focused in Europe take a slice of that. But I'm I'm wondering, Ron, like are, are we seeing? I want to ask Ron because Ron, I feel I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. But are we seeing like a peak for this market? Is there like a lot more room? Is the pie getting bigger or uh, like our SMEs? It, people have forever said they're underserved, but um, are are we seeing are we seeing a peak in this in this in these kinds of businesses? I'll speak from a U.S. perspective. I don't think we're anywhere near a peak. Um, I think there's just so much more room, more opportunity, niches to be carved out, uh, processes to be improved, products to be developed. 
I don't think we're anywhere near a peak in terms of the investment into it. Um, I, I do feel like the valuations feel like they're a little bit out of whack with with. Uh, I mean, you let's go back to you know J.P. Morgan Chase. You know they they made what like. $30 billion in net profit. And, you know, I don't know whether or not their $12 billion investment is more than what everybody else is, but their profits are probably more than every every fintech combined. So why, you know, are we not valuing true profitability over this, this prospect of, you know, promise down the road kind of thing? So the valuations might be a little out of whack. Uh, just saw yesterday, Bad news for the founders of Robinhood. They are no longer billionaires on paper uh, because of the, the the price decline in their stock. But, um, I, you know, if we're looking at this from peak investment into fintech and opportunity, I don't think we're anywhere. We're close to peak. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, just to put the sort of, I think, the the success of French fintech in that time sort of into context, right? They've sort of leapfrogged now. Sweden, which is, you know, that Swedish fintech market has been revered for such a long time, you know, Isaac and Kleiner. So I think really, you know, it's, it's, it, we need to be sort of taking that French fintech scene more seriously. And I think if you'd like to hear us get under the skin of French fintech with great guests, including Paddy, uh, then we'd recommend going back and listening to episode 567 of Fintech Insider Insights uh, in your podcast feed. Um, so I'm going to move us on to our next story um, with that in mind. Uh, so it comes from Fintech Futures uh, and is about accrue savings raising $25 million to offer consumers, quote, a responsible purchasing option. New York-based Fintech accrue savings has raised $25 million in a Series A uh, led by Tiger Global again. So founded in June 2021 by CEO Michael Hirschfield, accrue savings aims to get people saving again with its merchant-embedded shopping experience that rewards consumers for saving up for the things that they want to buy. So Accrue Savings embeds the savings feature on a retailer's website, enabling merchants to also put the feature in targeted email or SMS campaigns. When the consumer opens an account and hits savings milestones, they can receive FDIC-insured cash contributions from brands. So in its short existence, the company has racked up a customer list that includes Allbirds, Casper, Pony & Bark, Smile Direct Club, and Tire Agent. To find out more about Accrue Savings, we reached out to Michael Hirschfield, founder and CEO, to ask him to explain the save now, pay later concept, and if they really can disrupt the buy now, pay later market. The save now, buy later idea is one where brands incentivize consumers to save for specific products or at the category level, like I'm interested to buy a jacket, I'm not sure which one, I want to go on a trip, I'm not sure which one I want to go to, or at the brand level. Deeply mission-driven where brands need to align to a vision where not every consumer is ready to buy today, but rather many are thinking about it, exploring, or can't afford to make a purchase. But that doesn't mean that the opportunity to build affinity and a sustainable relationship with a consumer isn't available for them. I mean, the reality is there's been a proliferation of binopulator options all over the web. And we cannot forget that most Americans are not getting to the bottom of the funnel to, to use those BNPL options. And most Americans shouldn't be using those BNPL options. This is really should a savings option be introduced not as a disruption to BNPL, but rather as an awareness that most Americans are saving, that most Americans are not ready to make the purchase today. And it is not an or, but rather an and, which will be a very powerful way for retailers to engage with their consumers on the terms that are really most sustainable and deeply powerful um, for the consumers and ultimately will lead to a robust economic and fair system. All right, um, Ron, I can see you nodding, and I'm 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 keen to get your uh, your thoughts on this one. I mean, sounds great, right? 
Uh, sounds great. And, and I like the idea a lot. Um, my colleague Alex Johnson and I are, have been doing some research about the whole concept of embedded finance and can tell you that from at least the U.S. consumer perspective, there's there's huge interest in this, not just necessarily at the general consumer level, but even at you know, small business, gig workers, creators, things like that. Uh, I really like this concept. Uh, I think, though, that interestingly, I, I think the onus of making this work falls more on the retailer or the, the brand than it does on the consumer. It's a pricing thing. Now, let's say I'm a merchant, uh, a retailer, and I'm willing to give you $10 off on a product. Well, or, or you know, whatever it might be. Well, conceptually, if I want you, you know, if I'm going to give you a savings option, I could put that discount and contribute it to your account over time so that you're buying the product, you know, three months from now at full value, but you didn't really, you got the discount because I put it in there. So there's, there are a lot of pricing, uh, I think, complexities to this, that the brands, merchants, retailers, whoever that might be that are offering these things are going to have to figure out. Uh, I also would not um, underestimate the intelligence of consumers. That's generally not a generally accepted uh, idea around the world, but I don't think we can think that they're dumb, you know, just simply parking, you know, $100 every month, whatever it might be into a non interest bearing account. It's probably not what they're going to want to do. So the I love the idea. Uh, I think consumers will really go for it. I think it's going to be on the on the brand or perhaps, you know, the, the fintech providers onus to, to figure out the analytics and logistics of this on a on a on a deployment basis. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think you've called out some really important points there ron i think guerra an interesting thing that stood out to me from um the the founder and ceo michael hirschfeld's sort of cutaway there was was this point about it it and this not necessarily being an or but, but 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 potentially a sort of and right so this isn't it's it's tempting to think about this as a sort of like direct competitor to something like buy now pay later but that's not necessarily the case we've seen that space absolutely grow and i really liked ron's point about this is another sort of tool in the toolbox for retailers to sort of build more sort of bespoke, more meaningful campaigns to um, to consumers. What do you what do you think about the sort of the, the save now buy later space? And do you think there's real space for this to uh, to properly take off? I think the pendulum has definitely swung again, you know, like uh, lending and borrowing and instant gratification is very sexy and cool. Saving is not. So I think it's it's definitely a really, it's a novel idea and it's, um, it, it can, it can be used to incentivize some really good behavior uh, from, from consumers. But I, you know, as someone who's like a millennial on the cusp of Gen Z, I, I wonder if this is something that even I would ever use just like, cause you know, we've all been, well, when I say we've all, some of us have been online shopping at like 10 PM or whatever, midnight and just clicked something. And maybe a buy now pay later has incentivized you to, to, to buy it immediately. I don't know if, 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 um, merchants will want me to, to stop and ponder and think about, um, my behavior before I, I purchase this outfit. Um, but you know, on, on, on the bright side, like, yeah, so definitely the incentive for merchants for me feels, I, I wonder, like it definitely is an and right. Rather than like an or, um, so definitely can work as, as a part of like a, like a bunch of options to, to purchase things. But I see the way I see this working actually is in, luxury items, right? So I've I've many, many times in the past said that I'm going to be buying a Birkin before I buy a house. If those who don't know what a Birkin is, it's an Hermes bag. They cost a lot. <laughs> so I, I could actually see um, if Hermes w w were to introduce something like this um, and gamify it and provide like positive nudges over time, that's something that I, I, I could see taking off. Um, but ultimately, and this is not a, this is not a negative thing at all. But ultimately, I think that save not pay later. Same with buy not pay later. It's not a fee. It's not a product. It's more of a feature. So who's to say? You know, the space is already quite. There's quite a few players in the space. So um, I'm curious to see how the, how this how this evolves over time. Yeah. Thanks for um, thanks for clarifying on the back. <laughs> um, so so um, Patty, I guess one of the things um, that we heard in the cutaway as well was about. Um, this sort of being mission driven, right, and aligning it to brands that are mission driven. Do you think this is a is a sort of a showcase that maybe embedded finance can have a sort of ethical option, or at least a more sustainable option? It's again, I I think it is. Um, it's very interesting to think as to how 
you know, I think as as kind of said, whether it's just novel right now or if it actually could, you know, develop into some sort of way. And you can see, I think with with the you know some of the kind of companies who are kind of partnering up with these, um, you know, your Allbirds and your types of companies that typically associate themselves somewhat, with, which I believe with a more kind of ethical way of operating, that. Potentially, it do, it does make sense, especially with as Guerra said. You know, it's the whole saving isn't very sexy these days. To actually kind of really, you know, start working towards better financial health, well being, etc., better financial practices on an individual le- level. Like it, it's like as I said, on paper, it makes an awful lot of sense. Completely agree, and I think I think giving people the tools to do that, you know, is obviously a powerful proposition. Eric, I've got to wrap up, but I'm really keen for you to give you the final word on this. What do you read? Do you think this has legs? Where's it going? I I kind of got one agree with Vera that it is a feature, but I think it's a feature that can definitely find a home, particularly at the BNPL space, because a lot of the BNPL space, like Klarna, are essentially being challenged that they're putting people in depth. So if they can find a way to prove that they're helping people with the finances, like for instance, say, save now, say now, pay later options. That's something that they would probably welcome. So it's more of a feat, but it's more of a feature. I don't think it can stand by itself. Yeah, I think that's a really nice point. And actually, you're right. I think it's also an exercise in, in branding and PR, right? I think uh, if they can start, if the BMPL sector can start to counter some of that, that negative press, that that negative sort of perception um, that you've just mentioned, Eric, then I think, uh, yeah, why not go for it? Okay, um, I am now going to move us on to the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we don't have time to cover, but that absolutely still deserve a shout out. So, Gwery, do you want to get us started? Sure. Ghanaian fintech Float raises $17 million in seed to power cash flow for commerce in Africa. So this is from Disrupt Africa. So the Ghanaian fintech startup named Float, um, which is a cash flow management and spend platform for businesses in Africa, has closed a $17 million US dollar round of debt and equity of seed funding to speed up its development and launch of new products. The round was led by Tinder co-founder Justin Mateen's Jam Fund and Tiger Global uh, with debt financing provided by Carius. Float provides credit lines to small businesses as well as tools to manage business accounts and wallets uh, in one dashboard and as well as tools to automate bills uh, and vendor and supplier management, as well as invoice collections. So to put it simply, it aims to serve as a financial operating system for businesses. So the CEO, Jesse Ganesh, started the company, formerly known as Swipe, with Barmia Effa in 2020, and following its rebrand to Float, went live with the product in June 2021. So Ganesh said the company will use the new capital to speed up development of its cash management platform and launch new credit products tailored for specific businesses and verticals and industries. So this is really exciting. I mean, um, what, what I should, should have mentioned earlier is of the $17, $17 million, $10 million of that, so over, over half of it, is debt, uh, which opens them up to actually providing more credit to small businesses. We said before... SMEs are heavily underserved in every market, no matter where you are, Africa, Europe, North America. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to see what these guys do uh, with with the money and with their expansion. Great. Our next story comes from AltFi and is the Lords Committee saying that there is no, quote, convincing case for central bank digital currencies. You might be able to hear in my voice that I'm already skeptical. There is no convincing case for why the UK needs a central bank digital currency or a CBDC. And that is according to a new report from the cross-party Lords Economic Affairs Committee. In its report, Central Bank Digital Currencies, A Solution in Search of a Problem, the committee found that while a CBDC may provide some advantages, it could present significant challenges to individual privacy. Uh, quote, we found the potential benefits of a digital pound, as set out by the Bank of England, to be overstated or achievable through less risky alternatives said Lord Forsyth of Drumlean, chair of the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee. In addition to privacy concerns, the report noted financial stability as another risk area if a CBDC was introduced. So um, the, the, this report right from the House of Lords sets out, I think, quite clearly some of the, the known risks um, associated with CBDCs right, and claims that it could find no convincing case for launching one in the UK. I think the simple fact is that there are compelling benefits. I think everything from financial inclusion to the stability of the financial system. Um, and, and, and really the, the important consideration or debate isn't necessarily 
you know, around those benefits. It's actually maybe how you design those solutions to sort of maximize benefits and mitigate potential risk. I think with central banks covering the literally the, the vast, vast majority of the, the world's population, exploring CBDCs in, in, in some guise or another, I think this simply isn't going away anytime soon, um, no matter how much uh, this House of Lords committee might like it to. Back to you, Guerra. So this is from Finextra. Uh, Bolt becomes a Decacorn with a $335 million funding round. So the online checkout company Bolt has raised $335 million in a Series E funding round, bringing the firm's total valuation to $11 billion. The cash injection will support the launch of a raft of new products in 2022. It will also be invested in social commerce, where Bolt's founder and CEO, Ryan Breslow, believes native Im- embedded commerce will help put Bolt's checkout capabilities everywhere. The raise comes just three months after Bolt's Series D funding round, which took in $393 million. So Bolt's total funding to date is just shy of a billion. So however, since the firm operates in a space where competitors such as Stripe, Shopify, and Checkout.com are worth hundreds of billions of dollars, these large raises are par for the course. So, you know, at the end of the day, e-commerce checkout, the checkout experience is still, like I think I mentioned the pie analogy earlier, it's not even a pie, it's a freaking like mega ocean of pancakes. I don't know. <laughs> it's, there's just so much. It's just, there's so many players out there and and Bolt, um, you know, are really pulling their weight here. So Eric, I'm sure you'll be happy to, to hear that they are a decacorn now. There you go. I love that. A mega ocean of pancakes. Okay, cool. Well, that's a really good note, actually, to bring everybody back in for our final story of the week. So our and finally story this week comes from Charged Retail. Selfridges becomes world's first retailer to sell NFTs over the counter. I can already see you getting excited, Guerra. Um, Yeah, so Selfridges become the world's first retailer to sell fixed price NFTs over the counter in partnership with Paco Rabanne and Foundation Vassarelli. This could be Hermes all over again. The NFTs are digitized copies of the first 12 dresses created by French fashion house Paco Rabanne called Unwearables and 12 rare pieces by French artist Victor Vassarelli. The department store will begin selling the NFTs in its flagship London store on the 28th of January. Around 1,800 NFTs will be available to purchase, ranging in price from approximately £2,000 all the way up to £100,000 and customers can purchase them using bank cards. I feel like you're going to have some conflicting opinions on this one, Guerra. Actually, no. I mean, I think this, I'm actually so excited about this. Uh, This is like a huge deal because this is like the application of NFTs that I've dreamed about. Like I would love to have some kind of luxury um, or even like any kind of significant thing come with an NFT because that provides other opportunities later down the road for engagement with the owners or the or the subsequent owners of the NFT, as well as, you know, royalties going back to, to the creators. Um, but this is pretty cool. I mean, if anyone's in London on the 20th of January, please go uh, ch- take photos of the line for me. I will. I'll, I'll make sure I make it down. I'll, I'll send you a bunch of photos. <laughs> you really believe it's going to be a line? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a line snaking around the country. Uh, Eric, do you have any thoughts about, about this? I, I wonder how you feel about NFTs. Well, at risk of infuriating all the PRs that reach out to me about NF- NFT stories, I'm not surprised that Selfridges is the pl- place that is going to sell NFTs. I mean, if there's one pl- place where the people that buy NFTs should go is a place where the people with the too much money to know what they're going to do it is going to go is selfridges so of course it's the, well, the, those are the people who are going to buy it yeah i'm yet unconvinced about that this is a big thing or not ron are you a cynic or an optimist is this uh is this sort of selfridges and established brand really sort of grabbing nfts and sort of running with it or is this just fear of them being left behind and uh they don't really get it Put me on the cynical, skeptical side, um, maybe more skeptical than cynical, I think. I'm, I'm a little, always a little sensitive as, you know, the guy who writes a blog called The, the Snark Tank. Uh, but um, I'm just skeptical that, that, this is, that this is going to really become a mass retail type of product. I think if, if ever there was an article to make me feel desperately uncool, you know, reading this thing going, oh, cry. are these the kids today in that type of moment? 
listen, I, I think um, I, I, I think you can understand why Selfridges have done it. Like, they, if ever there's something to grab some headlines right now from even just a marketing ploy, again, it's probably more, the more cynical side. I suppose it, it is an application, uh, as mentioned. So you never know. But I, I would definitely say, definitely on the more, I think both skeptical, cynical side, but also on the uncool side, which I think is probably beyond that, that, that puts me in the cynical camp. Well, well, Paddy, I can only, I can only apologise that we've ended on an article that made you feel uncool. But I think, <laughs> you know what, maybe, maybe, maybe we can just sort of take where is excitement on this one and that's enough for sort of all of us, right? I just think it's the beginning. I just think it's the beginning of a lot of other cool stuff happening in, with NFTs in the real world. NFTs peaked with CryptoKittens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that that debate's going to have to wait for uh, probably a, a whole nother show. Um, so with that, I am going to wrap up this week's news show. Thank you so much to t- today's guests for what was not only really an insightful, um, a hugely insightful show, but a really enjoyable one as well. Let's go around and uh, just just sort of discuss where people can find out a little bit more about you, Eric. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we start with you? Well, you can read my daily news stories on verdict.co.uk or or you can f- follow me at Eric Johansson LJ on Twitter. Perfect. Ron, let's do you next. Uh, the FinTech Snark Tank on Forbes. Awesome. Paddy. Probably LinkedIn might be the best one for me. So Paddy O'Neill on LinkedIn and my recruitment team will kill me if I don't say we're always hiring as well. So spendus.com. Uh, very exciting time to join the company. Awesome. Yeah, check that one out. Um, Guerra. Uh, 11fs.com and I'm on the Twitter website uh, at notguerra. Awesome. And as for me, uh, Ross Gallagher07 on Twitter. Um, so thank you as always for listening. Do please join in the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.